If we pay attention well, if our mindfulness is not too blinkered, too narrow, if we honestly and carefully observe our experience, our life, especially the play of meaningfulness, a sense, senses of meaningfulness in our lives, and uh, the play of any sense of devotion. I don't just mean religious devotion, but anything we are devoted to, when we feel or we want to devote ourselves to something. We honestly and carefully observe uh, our life and those aspects of our life then we will come to recognize and inevitably acknowledge the, uh, the, the play of something that we are calling eros, and the play of what we are calling fantasy, and something we are calling soul-making. Uh, just through careful, honest, open observation of our experiences of our life, especially in certain, <clears throat> if you like, aspects of, of our lives, but actually in general, then these things will be recognized and acknowledged. These delineations that we have made and explored will be recognized and acknowledged, as well as the inevitability and the necessity of eros, of fantasy, of soul-making in our lives. That these are inevitabilities that whole complex eros fantasy soul making is is an inevitability arise in different ways at different times with threads running through our life threads of meaningfulness threads of fire threads of uh, all that and that they are necessary they are inevitable and necessary to us as human beings and when we recognize and acknowledge that then we uh, can begin to actually allow more uh, this soul-making movement, the eros that's involved in it in different ways, the fantasies, the image, images. Allow and explore that whole uh, <coughs> complex movement and process and dynamic of soul-making involving eros, involving fantasy, um, implying the, uh, the imaginal and the attention to Im <coughs> what we're calling image. And allowing and exploring all that, a lot uh, will be opened to us, for us. A lot will open in our experience, in our sensibility, in our feeling, in our emotion, in our conception. Much will be opened, much will, be, uh, will unfold from that allowing and that, that acknowledgement, that recognition, that allowing and that exploration. Much will open, much will unfold, much will be discovered, and much will be created. And much will be discovered slash created. And so, <clears throat> let's just, uh, in a way, recapitulate some of what we've drawn attention to, of what will be open, unfolded. I mean, we, we will notice, again, it's sometimes quite subtle, and sometimes what we don't actually notice at first when we begin to start exploring these territories. But we will notice that implicit 
um, aspects of the uh, of image or of what we're calling the imaginal, what we're calling image, um, we will start to notice different aspects. So, for example, the resonances. That, that what is imaginal for us, what is image for us, involves, creates whole um, sets and ranges of re- kinds of resonances in the being that we can notice. Part of the resonances are resonances of meaningfulness. This is an implicit aspect of what we're calling image or imaginal. It also has this sense of theater to it, this kind of <clears throat> middle way, if you like, between real and not real. Powerful, potent, moving, captivating in a way, but not really real. Theatre at its best, if you like. Uh, The aspect that we notice of timelessness, what we're calling the iconic nature of image. There's a timelessness, there's there's the eternal uh, that's palpable as a dimension uh, of the image, of the imaginal. The unfathomability that we sense there of, of an image. The inexhaustibility, and thus, in a way, the mystery, because it always involves something beyond in that unfathomability. Often, the aspect of duty involved somehow, somehow, to be... Uh, discovered, created, found out <clears throat> in relation to the image. Duty. How does it interface? How does it stream into my life? The physical reality that I move in. The aspect of love in the image. In the image, from the image to me, from myself to the image. Loves, plural is an implicit aspect that we, again, we notice. Not, not All this is maybe not so obvious at first. We get, it's like our, so to speak, our eyes become accustomed to the, to the light in, in the imaginal realm, and if, if we use certain language in relation to images. And we start to notice these, sometimes they're really obvious at first, sometimes less. The eros there, what we're calling eros, begins to be more obvious to us. The effects on the body and the, and the sense of the energy body. This <coughs> sense of the dimensionality or the dimensions, the opening of dimensions in, in the erotic imaginal, in the erotically beloved other, in the image. The whole uh, complex movement dynamic of eros psychologos in that mutual insemination, fertilization, expansion, enrichment, widening, deepening that we've talked about. However, whatever words we use or however exactly we slice up the delineations and definitions, something of that will be uh, discovered as an aspect implicit in, in, in the imaginal in image, in what is image for us. <clears throat> the cosmopoesis, the spreading into the world, but also, as we've said, into the self, that that gets involved in the image, not just the other. Self, other, world, and the eros itself become imaginally infused, become alive as images for us. And with that uh, cosmopoesis, and, and actually implicit in the eros-psychologus dynamic and the dimensionality that comes to be perceived, sensed that way in self, other, world, and eros. 
then different kinds of senses of sacredness, of, let's say, the divine. Different senses, various, diverse senses of the divine start to uh, become more and more palpable, more and more obvious, more and more evident and uh, experienceable in, in the imaginal constellation. And then, for example, as we say, we, uh, that unfolds more and more the dimensions of divinity into divinity, if you like, so that it becomes uh, both a perception and a concept that my eros, this eros that I am feeling, um, is, is divine or is the divine. It belongs, it comes from, it originates, it has roots in the divine. <clears throat> That's all kind of an implicit evolution, if you like, or already present in the image. Or, as we said, that my eros participates in the divine eros. So all, all this is kind of implicit waiting to be discovered, revealed, if you like. Um, once we acknowledge and then allow ourselves to explore eros, uh, fantasy image, the whole constellation, the whole movement of soul making. <clears throat> so it's this, uh, these aspects of divinity that I actually want to dwell on and uh, say something about in, in, in this, uh, this talk and, and, and the next talk. Um, so we'll return to that, but it's worth running through a little bit and again drawing out going over again, uh, things that we've already mentioned um, that are implicitly uh, involved or implied by this m movement and opening to explore soul-making <clears throat> and the erotic imaginal. So one of those uh, aspects is the implicit movement or the movement towards implicitly making less discrimination and uh, holding, harboring less of a conception of difference between something called life and something called fantasy. That whole division there that's so imposed on us by the kind of dominant philosophy of modernist Western culture um, tends to get uh, attenuated. We, we, we become aware and more and more aware that there is nothing called life separate from fantasy. Life and fantasy blend into each other. Our lives are full of fantasies. We need to learn to notice this, to attend, to become sensitive to that. So this is really, really important in terms of a direction that's implicit for me in this exploration of soul-making of Eros and the erotic imaginal. <clears throat> so often, um, images of self, or images of other, or images of the world, um, move towards, there's a gradual ev evolution, and sometimes right from the beginning, or even now, they are operating as images of self, of other, of world. They look... For instance, a, an image of self looks, appears, just like it's just me. So at first blush, at first sight, is it what, is it, who, who, who are you in this image? Oh, it's just me, someone might say. Or it's, 
What about that depression, which can feel like other, something visiting me, this darkness descending and wrapping around me, or this anger that wells up, this fire <coughs> of anger or whatever, or the world. It looks like it's just this depression, it's just that anger. It's just the world, as it usually is. So the image of self, for example, um, it, it, it can be something, you know, I'm involved in this image, and the image of self is something very odd. Suddenly I'm a, uh, some kind of creature or something. I'm a bull with horns and bellowing fire or something like that. So it's clearly there's an image of self that I'm identifying with. But is not necessarily the case. We've been through all this on the other retreats. So again, I'm recapitulating, but there's certain things that are important to draw out. <clears throat> this is one of them, that the image of self or other or world doesn't necessarily need to be very odd or different from the normal sort of appearance. Or obviously different from that. And there may be a sort of gradual evolution to uh, some, to a an opening to include the more kind of subtle images, if you like, that bear more, at first sight, bear more resemblance to just, oh, it's just me, it's just me, it's just this thing, or whatever. Now, it is the case, sometimes, that we have no fantasy, no image is operating in relation to something, no image uh, or fantasy in relation to myself with this aspect of the path, or myself, um, whatever it is. There is either um, a kind of realism, so actually there is a kind of fantasy there, but in the poor sense, and we're taking it as real, I'm a failure. I'm a loser because I keep experiencing this, or whatever it is. Uh, it's not a fantasy in our pregnant, dimensional, uh, theatrical sense. It's a realism. So sometimes that's the case for us, and sometimes there's this a flat kind of absence of the imaginal, we're in flatland, we're perceiving the self, others, and the world flatly, or some aspect of self, other, world, and uh, eros flatly, the absence of the imaginal. <clears throat> but sometimes fantasy, for example, of, of self, is, is there, but it's subtle, as I said, and this needs us to, if you like, expand the range of subtlety of our attention allow our attention and our sensibility to become more subtle, to enable us to notice the subtle fantasy that's operating and to attune to it. Yeah? So these kind of subtle fantasies, subtle images, are um, often present in, in, in our life, but we just don't recognize them. <coughs> And we come into wrong relationship with them. There's something related here as well that we should note um, that often um, we are given images, we are given fantasies, if you like, we are called to them. Uh, we notice or discover images. So we have to, as I said, develop the sensibility, the sensitivity to discern them, to sniff them out, as it were. It's not the case that it's always uh, either possible or advisable 
just to move into a kind of active manipulation mode of practice where you just decide to see the self or life or this situation or this other or whatever it is, see it some way or other that's prescribed from the outside uh, as an image, as a fantasy, and that's supposedly helpful. Sure, there's a place for that, there's a time for that, but there's also a dimension of soul that we are given as I said, we discover, we notice, we're called to, rather than I just take it out of a textbook and decide to see it this way. So both of these are helpful. But <clears throat> for me, for the fullness of soul-making and the depth of, and the power of soul-making, we also really need to be open to what's, if you like, what am I called to here, now? What image, what fantasy, what eros am I called to? Can I notice that? <clears throat> um, but the main point right now is that, sure, there's a place in our practice, in our lives, for images that are obvious. I had a dream last night, and it's clearly an image visiting me in the dream. It may not seem to bear any relation to my life immediately, obviously. So I take that dream from the image, and I can... Sorry, I take that image from the dream and I can work with it, or I'm sitting in meditation and doing some samatha or doing some emptiness and the loosening that happens um, gives birth to an image or I'm tracking my emotions, I'm opening to my emotions in the energy body and that gives rise to an image of this or that in meditation and it's clearly an image. But to me the whole movement starts to, uh, let's say, include more and more. Um, the the increase in subtlety of what image means to us and can be for us and and what fantasies uh, we are in touch with uh, and uh, alive for us in our lives, so that eventually the movement is to is that we sense life as image, as soul. We sense life as image and as soul. So imaginal meditation practice should, I believe, um, gradually uh, increase, develop our sensibility and our ability to sense life. What is life? Life is experience. Life is experience and appearance of self and concept of self, other, world. That's life. So imaginal meditation practice meditational practice of the imaginal should um, develop and increase and open and deepen our sensibility uh, and our capacity to sense life as image, as soul, to sense life that way. So that, uh, implicit in, in that, is that there is less and less separation between something called meditation and something called life or relationship or work or whatever it is. But of course, our culture, the dominant culture in the West, and sometimes the dominant meditation cultures, do not support this. I've been through all this before. But that kind of <coughs> bleeding into each other, overlap, um, interpenetration, recognition of the saturation of image and fantasy in our life, the necessity and the inevitability of that, that recognition and the um, uh, permission to enter into it and explore it and even expand it and use it um, artfully 
the culture and the dominant kind of teachings that we get through the larger culture of uh, Western modernism at present does not support this. It supports rather the division into a simple um, real and, and a simple unreal. It's either real or it's imaginary. Or the uh, what is image gets reduced uh, to some kind of uh, explanation psychologically. So another thing that becomes evident <coughs> as we uh, recognize, acknowledge the centrality, the necessity, inevitability of eros. Uh, we call it psyche, fantasy, and image, and soul making in our lives, and we begin to allow and explore all that. Is that we we start to actually realize, uh, following on from what I just said, that what we are calling soul um, is actually a missing element, an absent element in many psychologies at present. Certainly not all. <coughs> um, and there are also some psychologists who might use that word soul, but actually mean something um, either much smaller than what we're talking about, or, or in fact quite different. And certainly many philosophies in the past have used that word soul to mean something different. But we start to see, because you can't help look around and feel the difference, that it's a missing element in many psychologies, this idea and experience of soul that we've been um, unfolding and exploring on, on this retreat and the other retreats. Certainly, of course, many psychologies um, uh, include heart and heartfulness, and certainly thought and awareness of thought and an analysis of thought and belief and maybe even the concept of modes of mind to a certain limited um, extent, other such <coughs> ideas and divisions. But uh, much less so elements of what we would call soul-making, soul and eros, and the imaginal as we are uh, presenting it. Again, many psychologists might use the images, some might really, the imagination, excuse me, some might really shun that and be fearful of the imagination, any use of the imagination. Thing, one will quote, lose touch with, quote, reality, etc. Um, but, but generally speaking, the element of soul and soul-making and eros, as, as we are talking about them, is often, is often absent. It's a missing element. And even in, um, sort of, we can look at, if you like, um, classical standard um, Theravadan Buddhist psychology, which is handed down to us from the in the Abhidhamma, <coughs> um, so-called higher teachings. Um, and you see there, there's this kind of um, minute or attempt at a minute kind of classification, categorization, analysis, a sort of uh, almost bureaucratic movement of the mind at, at categorization um, of, for example, emotions and mind states. So you get a list of, uh, I've forgotten how many, um, and there's sad, happy, excited, peaceful, aversive, desiring, bored, you know, etc., etc. But one quickly gets the sense with that that it's either what we would now call a psychology without soul, or, or we might just as well say a psychology that does not serve and support and nourish soul-making. 
either get that sense or that there actually is a fantasy operating there. But it's a fantasy of order, of usually of one-dimensionality, of reductionism, and of, of, um, of clarity. It's a fantasy of clarity. That in dividing things up this way into some kind of neat uh, categorical system, that, that there is clarity. But the question is, in that fantasy, that kind of limited, oftentimes one-dimensional fantasy, uh, what comes from that? What is allowed from that? Where does it tend to go? What does it tend to open up for us in the experience of life? Where does it lead? What does it support? What does it not support? What does it not allow? What does it nourish? What does it not nourish? We will also notice again, if we recognize, acknowledge this uh, aspects, dimensions of our existence that we're calling eros, fantasy, soul-making, image, the inevitability and necessity of that, we will also notice, and again this is partly recapitulation, we will also notice that there is fantasy operating uh, in our relationship with the path, a fantasy of the path, a fantasy of the awakening, of awakening, a fantasy of the tradition, a fantasy of the self in relationship to that tradition on the path towards awakening. And with all that, there's a fantasy or fantasies of the Buddha, if, if you're a Buddhist or whatever teacher uh, or teachers. <coughs> are important to you, have come alive to you through the aliveness that the soul-making in relation to that in, in, uh, that must be there if there's the devotion. And, and, and the, the fire of that must be there. And whatever teachers have become alive to you and important, that they will be fancy of that. So it's fancy of Buddha if you're a Buddhist. And it's not that in real, and this is obvious now, we've, we've this should be really obvious. That it's not that in realizing that there's a fantasy of path and awakening and Buddha that when we then say, oh, this is rubbish, throw it all out. There's a much more, to my mind, much more sophisticated understanding here and psychology here that actually recognizing the fact that we have uh, fantasies of the Buddha, that the Buddha for us is fantasy. It doesn't mean it's completely made up. Fantasies in dialogue with what's there on the page in the suttas and what other we've heard from other teachers and everything. But there's a f- fantasy that imbues that dialogue. I cannot separate it. And we understand in the more sophisticated psychology we don't, we don't want to separate it. It's, it, it would be a, a silly move. There's a liberation um, of of that capacity for fantasy to a certain extent. We feel liberated in relationship to the fantasies of Buddha, path, awakening, tradition, self on the path, etc. And there's soul-making allowed there. So this has, we've touched on this a little bit, and I, I hope that you will <coughs> dare to explore this in your, in your relationship with practice in your life. And so a person might say, if they hear from such and such a teacher or read from such and such a teacher or someone or other, such and such a scholar, supposed scholar or whatever, the Buddha taught basically something very simple. Try to be kind. Everything is impermanent. Everything is a process or a flow. So let go. 
and experience ease. This is the goal. That's what the Buddha taught. Try to be kind. Everything's impermanent or a process or a flow. So let go and experience ease. And that is the goal. And the person might hear that or read that or whatever or try. someone's trying to convince them of that or something. And recognizing this aspect of fantasy actually say, is this such a Buddha who just taught that, are they even that interesting as a Buddha? Is the fantasy there that uh, that I can kind of build on that or around that? If that's my fantasy of the Buddha, is it is it a uh, a fantasy commensurate with with my soul and the needs for soul making? Would such a Buddha as that be be that worthy of study and of of the injection of <coughs> eros and devotion uh, in all the ways that? devotion can come in, all the dimensions, if you like, or manifestations of devotion that can come into our path. Would such a Buddha as that be actually worthy of that much study, or the, or the infusion of, of the erotic imaginal? And again, if one um, is uh, subject to that kind of um, insistence from a writer or a teacher or whatever it is, who claims the Buddha did not teach any transcendent unfabricated, as might be one interpretation of the Theravada, that, that its central thrust is, is to a transcendent unfabricated, and so-and-so might be saying the Buddha did not teach transcendent unfabricated. He did not teach uh, what we might call in our language the deep emptiness of all things, which perhaps was one of the two central um, thrusts of, of the Mahayana, uh, the development of the Mahayana. And the Buddha did not teach how that understanding of the deep emptiness of all things begins to reveal uh, more and more the, the, the divinity, if you like, or the sacredness of all things, which again you might see as one of the central thrusts of the Vajrayana. And presently the Buddha taught none of that. The person is insisting or claiming and trying to create a scholarship which sort of um, claims that, then one response would be, can I discover then, if if you're saying that, can I discover or create and discover, create, a Buddha that did or that will? I'm aware already that I discover slash create the Buddha anyway. I create and discover, you create and discover the Buddha anyway. And you might want a Buddha that taught deep things, wonderful things, much more for you to move into, to learn, to discover, to explore. You might want a Buddha that taught the unfabricated, the transcendent unfabricated, that taught the deep emptiness of all things, that taught the opening into the perception, the cultivation of the perception of the the divinity of all things, as they say in the Vajrayana, to see all appearances as divine, the sacredness of all things. I recognize that we create, discover the Buddha anyway. I'm aware um, of that. Can I discover, create a Buddha that did teach all that? 
that will teach all that. And he talked also about this strange um, religious fantasy that puts the authority in the past, and if the historical teacher didn't, if the historical Buddha didn't teach all that, why can we not regard it as an evolution of those who came later in his wake, in his stream, drawing on his platform, his teachings, um, and giving another dimension, another level to the teachings as, as an evolution, as an improvement? But there's something here about actually uh, taking away uh, a realist basis for the path in different ways through the emptiness and through the, and through the understanding and the imaginal taking away realist basis and recognizing the primacy of image the inevitability of image and fantasy the necessity of it as we said so the whole path is so it's like taking away um taking away a tablecloth you know when you've got all the plates and cups on whisking it away and it comes to rest on the solid ground of what? Emptiness and image and fantasy. So we have our solidities reversed, usually. We think the tablecloth is the most substantial thing that's keeping everything up. It's insistence on reality and historical fact and uh, whatever it is. Actually, it's, as we've said, it's usually just me importing uh, whatever my metaphysical beliefs are into my interpretation, my scholarship, scholarly interpretation. Scholars do that. And actually taking away that uh, insistence or, or, or desperate uh, attempt at a kind of realism and actually recognizing that all this rests on the ground of the groundlessness of emptiness and of the imaginal. A whole different basis for what we're doing. A whole different basis. The possibilities that opens up <coughs> for us in experience, in perception, in conception, in soul making. So there's all that. And again, uh, one last piece about what we uh, what we recognise, what we come to uh, when we when we recognise, acknowledge. Um, this movement of eros in our lives and fantasy and soul making and we allow ourselves to explore we, we recognize in that implicit even in that statement is that we recognize that we care about soul making we care about soul making and more than that we see that sometimes soul making is not the same as uh, reducing or ending suffering Sometimes soul-making is not the same as reducing or ending suffering. So we have a dilemma here. We care about soul-making and sometimes it's, it doesn't equate to ending or even reducing suffering. In our what we're calling our phenomenological approach, we... Um, we begin to recognize fabrication of self, of perception, of world, of dukkha, of all of that. We begin to understand dependent origination through playing with ways of looking. That begins to reveal more and more 
um, the emptiness of all things, and eventually it even reveals the emptiness of the whole notion of fabrication. It's a radical, radical emptiness of all things. And in the end, uh, in the way I would present it, in the end what we're left with is the recognition that all we have are ways of looking. There are just ways, and those ways of looking are empty too, but that's all we have. There's a kind of um, something akin to a, a very radical uh, version of post, post, sort of postmodern understanding, postmodernist understanding in philosophy. Something akin to that. All we have are ways of looking. This is what we're left with: ways of looking, and the range of ways of looking that we have developed and that are developable that we can play with. So then the question is, how does one choose? On what basis does one choose between these different ways of looking? All the range of the diverse ways of looking that we may have cultivated in practice. Now, the standard Buddhist answer would be, uh, or the standard answer of Buddha Dharma, um, at least the way I would read it, would be that you choose according to the Four Noble Truths. In the shorthand version, in other words, I choose a way of looking in this situation right now that I'm experiencing. I choose a way of looking that brings less suffering, e- either in the future or right now in relation, in relation to this. But in relation to whatever it is I'm dealing with, I, how do I choose ways of looking? I choose a way of looking that leads to less suffering. So if that's meta, and then that's that 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 eases the suffering in a situation. To meta to self, meta to other. If it's compassion, if it's exchanging self and other, if it's seeing um, whatever is going on for me, this difficulty as anatta, as not self. If it's contemplating the impermanence, if it's uh, you know, there's there's many and dwell on this a uh, lot elsewhere. But that would be the the way the standard sort of answer from Buddha Dharma would be. Um, you choose a way of looking dependent on your sense of what attenuates, what diminishes the suffering the most in regard to whatever you're you're dealing with. But we might also choose a way of looking uh, at times that with the question like, what brings soul-making? What is the way of looking, the way of relating to this experience, this um, constellation of self, other world, etc., right now, that brings soul-making? If we, again, if we recognize uh, in our lives eros and and image and fantasy and soul-making, and we recognize the inevitability and necessity, then actually, and we develop that, then actually often there, there will be times when we have two options that we can look and ask the question uh, of, of the ways of looking that I have developed and that I have available to play with in my toolbox, so to speak, which ways of looking um, to decrease the suffering, drain the suffering out of the, out of the situation experience or lead to less suffering. Um, and a second option is what supports, nourishes, opens, um, ignites the soul-making. Now, sometimes these two the road to less suffering and the road to soul-making would just be the same, in fact. And quite a lot of the time they'll be the same. Sometimes there'll be a lot of overlap there. And sometimes there will be um, areas, at least, where they diverge. They diverge. So the relationship with um, soul-making and the reduction of suffering, I I think, is actually quite complex when we go into this. 
we're part of what we're saying is going back right to the beginning of this talk. If we're honest and careful in our observation, I I cannot actually help but um, I cannot avoid this complexity and these questions of the relationship, for instance, between soul making and suffering. I will bump into them. I will have to encounter and engage these questions and their complexity. I mean, this is touching on what we've already touched on, but um, in, in, in this retreat and in, in past retreats. But we have said that eros and soul-making, the experience of eros and soul-making, or those <coughs> aspects, um, they bring, and we, we recognize them, by a de- decrease in, in dukkha and in the contraction. So eros, unlike what we're calling craving, Soul-making, unlike what we're calling papancha, actually bring less dukkha, decrease the dukkha, and ease the contraction in different ways that we've touched on before. But we've, at the same time, we've also said that eros will always involve a certain amount of erotic tension, because it keeps the two and the polarity and the, and the pull towards more. And oftentimes, uh, the, the um, erotic relationship involves because of the imagination, involves some sense of duty to be, if you like, deciphered, um, found out, created. <clears throat> and, and if there's duty, then there is at least in relation to that duty not complete freedom. You see, freedom, end of, su- end of suffering on one side, and <clears throat> duty and erotic tension on, on the other. All this is involved in the eros. It's not straightforward, um, what the relationship even of, of eros and soul making is to um, suffering in in that sense. We've also said, <coughs> additionally, that um, that with the, um, the 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 firing up and and the expansion of the fire uh, of, in the eros psyche logos dynamic and the movement, the fire catching light here and there and expanding and spreading out uh, and deeper and and in sometimes what happens in the breaking of the vessels that that expansion will will cause walls to shatter walls of concept walls of um, vision walls of sensibility walls of awareness walls of relationship structures etc and that expansion. And, and the sometimes uh, when that expansion is sudden or <clears throat> abrupt or even, so to speak, violent in a way, that is not peaceful sometimes. It's not always peaceful. And sometimes it's even disturbing and disorienting. Disorienting. Is that a reduction in suffering when that, when that, when that happens that way in soul-making? I mean, sometimes it's delightful and beautiful, and sometimes it's not. So what's the relationship there? And and yet again, with all that, we could say, well, there's a kind of freedom of sorts right there. Freedom of what? Well, these walls. The walls of concept, the walls of vision, the walls of perception that I was enclosed in have now just crashed open. And a certain freedom of thinking, of seeing, of sensing has has emerged. So there is a kind of freedom there. But it's not always peaceful. And sometimes it's disturbing. It's complex, complex. James Hillman, um, in his <coughs> presentation, the way he um, thinks about the imaginal and all that, um, he insists that what he calls pathologizing is part of um, what the soul does. The soul is always involved in creating dukkha through the imaginal. Uh, 
and he devotes quite a lot of um, time to that and insisting on it. I I would actually not agree with him that it's always the case. Um, think that in a way maybe he was re- as always teaching is contextual and he was perhaps reacting to certain currents that were <coughs> very dominant around him at that time uh, in the 60s and 70s when he was first developing his ideas but I th- think for myself I don't always agree with him um, about that at all or rather I don't agree that that is always the case however sometimes I think we need to um, recognize what he calls the pathology in a certain image opening up, the pathos in it, the the, the kind of suffering that is <coughs> endemic, intrinsic to a certain image, so that certain images do open up freedom in one way and a certain kind of um, pathos or suffering in another way. Um, so, for example, in, in the past, I used to share about some solitary, uh, certain images that I would get recurrently, different variations of the kind of solitary wanderer. Beautiful, beautiful images, and the divinity in them, and the kind of archetypal nature of them, and the, the beauty, and the meaningfulness, and depth of resonance there. I wouldn't want to trade that but uh, in for something that... Um, you know, was more bland and avoided that the soul-making that was implicit and, and involved in them. But there was a kind of, uh, let's say, a kind of loneliness in in those um, solitary wanderer images, beautiful and moving and touching and opening and deepening as, and, as they were. So... I'm not. I wouldn't like to agree with James Hillman in that kind of saying. It's always like that. Soul making always involves that image. Always involves pathologizing. But I think we really need to keep the door open and be sensitive and discerning when that, let's call it pathologizing, and when the suffering is actually part of the image, but it has this beauty and this meaningfulness making and this opening quality to it, <coughs> um, uh, in the theatre of it and in the duty of it. So uh, it, it's almost like don't shut the door on that. Recognize that it's, that it's necessary to some images at some points in some movements of soul making. And can we discern, can we listen, and can we recognize? <clears throat> Fourthly, there is in, 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 in the Dharma, there's the teaching of, uh, to quote Ajahn Chah, the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. And he used to ask people, can you, is this, is this just suffering, or is it the suffering that's leading to end of suffering that you're going through right now? What kind of suffering are you going through right now if you're feeling suffering, if you're miserable, if you're distraught? Is it the suffering that leads to the end of suffering? So there's this idea of the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. <clears throat> I was telling you about the Upandita retreats in the 80s and how how much suffering uh, people some of the people used to call them the Dukkha retreat. Uh, it's like that it involves suffering, but it was it was thought to be the suffering that leads to the end of suffering, or even just in people so often, as I think I mentioned as well, trying to develop their samadhi, their samatan, hearing about the jhanas and wanting to go for that, and. And ha- having getting so tight around that that movement and that directionality and that goal orientation, and then just dropping the whole thing because it's, it's like, oh, just be with what is or whatever. 
how do we determine if it's actually the case that this suffering that I'm experiencing is a suffering that leads to the end of suffering? It's, it's not actually that obvious. Furthermore, we, we recognize I said, that soul-making um, is involved um, in, in a fantasy that's involved in, in, in the practice, about the practice, about the path, and about the suffering that the path involves. The difficulty, the hardship, the, the stretching of oneself. So, for example, on an Upandita retreat, plenty of fantasy around the retreat, the retreat form, the experiences, the teacher, where it's going. And even the suffering on the retreat becomes uh, 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 embroidered into that fantasy. It's part of the fantasy, the suffering itself, the hardship, the dukkha. Or it gets, uh, on other retreats, in Goenka style, for instance, the suffering is conceived of as a purification. Um, but But certainly fantasy, suffering becomes part, that kind of suffering becomes part of the fantasy. It's wrapped up with the sense of meaningfulness, the fantasy of the self, of the tradition, all of that. It's not not uh, not simple. This relationship of soul making and 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 the supposed lessening of suffering. And you know, implicit in all these um, four uh, ways, that's the case uh, that it's not simple. That I've just <coughs> um, gone through implicit in all those is what I've also mentioned before um, on different uh, different times is that the meaning of dukkha often gets translated as suffering, the meaning of that word uh, as, the sec- as the first noble truth, and the meaning of ending dukkha, ending suffering, or uh, even reducing suffering, is now completely open to interpretation. Completely open. When Now where a lot of people, perhaps most, um, don't really subscribe to a belief in rebirth and that the end of dukkha is the end of rebirth and all that. What does it mean, dukkha, suffering? Some people, uh, um, it just means this, but this this kind of dukkha remains. Uh, whatever. One's uh, constriction and a sort of pain at the existential situation, it's just that one is not adding to that with a kind of neurosis, um, etc. But basically, in all these different interpret, in, in all these different kind of... Um, explanations, if you like, of the path and Buddhism and, and this and that, the meaning of the two central terms, dukkha and the end of dukkha, it has, has become open to interpretation. So that also makes this whole question between what is the relation, the, the whole question of what is the relationship between soul-making and suffering also adds to the complexity, the openness of that question. I mean, even more, and I'm not going to dwell on this, we can easily assume, <coughs> as um, if one is a Buddhist practitioner, or certainly a Buddhist teacher, that one's engaged in something that just brings less suffering in the world. And it's very clear, we're part of the, uh, you know, we're part of the movement towards less suffering in the world. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I just, I think the, the question is much more interesting um, than, than, than is you know, it warrants more questioning than just assuming that. Um, so, you know, uh, 
even if a person says to me, this is, you're so helpful, you know, so helpful, your teaching, and this and that, I, I, I for myself, don't, I feel like, I, I, I don't feel like I'm completely drawn into that assumption that I am very simply serving the end of suffering in the world. Even, even if, you know, hundreds of people say, oh, how helpful. Um, to me, it warrants more investigation. And I've talked in the past, I'm not going to dwell on this here, but, you know, sometimes um, some streams of Buddhism, and I'm, you know, uh, the stream that I'm most involved in, um, insight meditation tradition, there is, there is, there tends to be a certain, relatively speaking, lack of engagement or lacking, lacking of a, a modeling um, by us teachers of a sort of <coughs> political engagement, environmental in- engagement, etc., so all all this means um, to me means uh, can we question all this? Just this whole assumption, even that we're moving, <coughs> we're supporting, we're really kind of important in the movement to less suffering. Seems so obvious. Of course you are, because we teach about love and letting go, kindness and letting go. So how how could we not be? And uh, so I'm not saying. Um, People should should be this way or shouldn't be this way or should do this instead of this. I'm actually not saying that. I'm not saying <coughs> it is that we're um, definitely that we're creating less suffering or it isn't. Uh, uh, rather, again, I'm actually just wanting to open and and kind of insist on questioning here uh, around like what do we mean when we talk about the end of suffering or, or reducing suffering, dukkha and the end of dukkha, <clears throat> can we see everything that's involved there and all the assumptions and the diversity of view and interpretation and the contradictions in what we're even saying and questioning that, secondly, questioning all that, going, daring to go into that, invites us or must include an awareness of soul-making and fantasy in all that. So again, the, the, the question here of choosing ways of looking, of navigating on our paths and in our lives, um, and how to choose a way of looking, is it just the ones that reduce suffering? What about the soul-making? Ways of looking, ways of relating, ways of conceiving that bring, less, uh, bring more soul-making. The relationship between those two, if you like, um, premises or criteria for um, choosing, for navigating, that's complex. And if it doesn't seem complex, I think it it's only a matter of time before it does. <laughs> because uh, um, as we go more into what's involved <clears throat> both on both sides, the meaning of what suffering means and the recognition um, and the exploration of soul-making, and what that means, uh, then, then, then we see there's a really complex, which is wonderful. Shouldn't necessarily be daunted or turned off by complexity. It invites more exploration. It invites more questioning. <clears throat> so, actually, all that was by way of a very long introduction, kind of recap um, about what happens. Uh, recap of what happens when we recognize, acknowledge, eros, fancy soul-making, recognize its inevitability, necessity, allow it, explore it, etc. in our lives, and what opens that, what opens from that. 
But what I want to dwell more on in, in the next, um, this talk and the next, and maybe in the one after that, is that through this, um, what we might call a phenomenological approach, um, what we've been calling, excuse me, phenomenological approach, um, it comes to be, as I mentioned at the beginning of this talk, um, the opening of the sense or senses of divinity, um, experiences of what we might call divinity, and the opening also of concepts of what we might call divinity. <clears throat> so, in experience and in ideation, um, divinity starts opening up for us, just through um, what we're calling uh our phenomenological approach. <clears throat> I'm going to nuance that um, as, as we go on. But just first to say that uh, the you know I'm aware that for different people, certain words and certain uses of language have quite different resonances. So some people, and and often some Buddhists, really um, get turned off or uh, have kind of, you know. Uh, difficult reactions when words like God or divinity are used. And others, quite the opposite. <clears throat> um, those words, um, uh, theistic words, if you like, open something that Buddhist language uh, doesn't kind of reach or open so much. Someone was saying, and this actually is someone with um, a Catholic upbringing, but... Um, uh, but but doesn't need to be, and I've seen this. It doesn't actually depend on the background uh, and the conditioning culturally, etc. Um, but some people say, well, when I hear the word God, it opens much more up inside me and opens my sensibility and my experience much more than when I hear the word Buddha nature. Um, or someone says. Um, the idea and my sense of the sacred heart of Jesus, if you know that teaching, the sacred heart of Jesus, um, opens something much more for me, has much more dimensionality, beauty, pull, captivation, meaningfulness, resonance, than just a word like compassion or karuna, or the cultivation of other beautiful qualities. So... People are different, reactions are different, I'm really aware of that, um, and I'm actually a little bit torn what to suggest um, in, in regard to that, because <clears throat> I could advise, just be comfortable. If I or someone else, Catherine or whoever it is, uses a word um, like divinity and you're not comfortable with it, or it doesn't really mean much for you, then, then just substitute another word that does. Be comfortable, choose your own words. On the other hand, I might I might also say in in regard to this, um, maybe it's good to use words that you're not familiar with, that actually um, stretch you, that kind of leave more to open into that you haven't decided. Oh, I know that. I know what it means. It refers to this experience that I have, or it refers to that um, idea, or whatever. So. I could go both ways in the advice, and um, maybe it'd be interesting for you to try both ways. The comfortable, the familiar, your words, or stretching uh, a word that stretches and, and is a little bit unfamiliar to you. Because words like divine, and I would say also Buddha nature, um, to me, <coughs> imply um, something 
you know, it may not even be a thing for a start, but something not capturable, something infinite. Uh, in in the very when I use terms like Buddha nature and divinity, I mean, and uh, this is often recognised in relation to divinity, but um, something not capturable, something infinite, something not containable or graspable or fully definable, not fully containable, graspable or definable. And we said this in relation to Eros, but um, just making it more clear about divinity itself. Um, so there is, having said that, um, considerable folly in then going ahead and, and starting to talk about this. But still, um, I think you know, turning away from the whole thing uh, is also uh, kind of is not the answer to this. Just not speaking at all or not exploring. Delineations, definitions, the magic of words, all this can be soul-making, all this can fertilize our uh, perception, our sensibility, our conceptions. So we could uh, say that, um, let's maybe draw attention to some aspects of, um, <coughs> of, of the divine, uh, if you like, or what we might call the divine or Buddha nature, I, I'm actually going to, for myself, use those words interchangeably. But um, or God or whatever. But um, and I realise, of course, that's very contentious, etc. Um, for some people, um, but we can draw attention to the fact that both experiences and concepts of divinity or the divine have in those experiences and concepts some sense of something that is more than the experience or more than the concept, something that's beyond. So in the very um, experience and concept is, is I think, wrapped up in it um, a recognition, a feeling that the concept or the experience can never, um, the concept can never capture what divinity is fully can never fully capture what divinity is. Um, however, I would insist that concepts can still be helpful. It's like a jewel with infinite facets to not then, <clears throat> and this concept illuminates <coughs> or reveals um, for our encounter, for our contemplation, for our experience and exploration, it reveals um, one facet and a different concept reveals another facet, but the jewel itself could be said to have infinite facets. Therefore, it's still helpful um, to explore concepts. Just know that you're never, you're never going to get a concept that, that kind of completely circumscribes the whole thing. And the same with experiences of the divine. Um, there's, uh, in the experience itself, there's this feeling as if there's... Um, Generally speaking, I would say as if, as if there's more. Something that, this experience is just one face, let's put it that way, the experience is just one face of the divine. With experience, that's not always obvious at first, and of course we can come into wrong relationship with concepts and believe that we have captured um, something like that fully, the divine fully. But with concepts and experiences, I say it's the same. There's such a diversity of experiences um, 
of the divine. Such a diversity, so much variety, and again, I would say infinite. The senses of sacredness that we can have, and the senses of divinity we can have, are infinite. Partly to do with the, the eros-psychologos dynamic and the way that moves, as we've been discussing. It's implicit in that, is, is that, uh, or rather in what I want to say also, is that our experiences of the divine um, over time evolve. We, 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 we get to have uh, more depth, more diversity, more range in, in our experiences of divinity. So we're talking about, and our concepts, we're talking about both in the experience and concepts, something that um, hopefully, certainly potentially, it, it, it evolves. Experience and concepts of divine evolve, partly, as I said, because of the eros-psychologus dynamic, and partly just through deepening insight. Um, in in into uh, less fabrication, but there's always this um, sense of <coughs> more or beyond or an infinity in some way that that can't quite uh, get around. Concept means to to to, in a way, concipere to 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 take. Chipper is to take to in, in Latin. So there's a sort of taking, a kind of um, uh, grasping at. The word concept actually implies a holding of something, taking taking hold of. And there's something in in the sense and the concepts of divinity that, that, that I would say sooner or later and usually sooner recognizes that that's, that can't be can't be completely grasped that way, either through the experience or through um, or through the concept. <clears throat> but I want to point out something about um, experience of the divine that maybe isn't obvious, but partly because it's so hard to articulate. Um, but about experiences of the divine, a couple of things. Um, I would say that if we look carefully and kind of get used to those kinds of experiences, that experiences of the divine have, we, we sense something of relationship, they're relational experiences. Now, they're not necess- they can include um, the sense of a personal divinity and, and, and the relationship of this self with a personal divinity, absolutely. But even <coughs> experiences of an impersonal divine vast awareness or vast love or whatever, you know, all, all kinds of things, um, they still feel or seem, or we still sense, uh, and again, maybe not obviously at first, but they're related to who I am. So there's still relationship implicit in them in, in terms of who I am. Or we could say, experiences of divinity are related to who I am. They have something to say, something to... Um, open me to, to inform me um, about um, uh, about who I am. They bear on who I am, uh, most essentially, most fundamentally, in my depths, etc. Um, we could say, so this, this I think is, I mean, not, obvious at first, but I, I'd say I just want to draw out a couple of characteristics of experiences of the divine, uh, despite their diversity. I'd say they're relational, and they're, at least they're related to who I am. They say something about, they inform me about, they 
open me to realize something about who I am. Now we could say um, <clears throat> that they experience the divine involve a sense or recognition that um, who I am, this self, um, the very existence of, of this self, of who I am, whether I realize it or not, um, I, it, I recognize in an experience of the divine that whether I realize it or not, when I'm aware of it or when I'm not aware of it or if I'm not yet aware of it or someone else who's not yet aware of it, it is somehow always contained, this self, this who I am, is somehow always... Um, at least a part of who I am, is always contained or subsumed in or part of or related to or participating in something vaster. Not a something vaster in, in a, 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 that's something that's a more rigidly boundarized, um, a boundaried entity. Uh, like a, like a, a nation state, for example. So someone could feel like, I don't know, in... in uh, <coughs> Uh, with this rise of nationalism at different times in history in different places, and I feel like I'm really part of something vaster, uh, or uh, you, you know, but that's a very rigidly boundarized because there's us and them. Uh, not like that. Um, rather, something that also contains, subsumes, includes, and in a way is everything, and more than everything. In other words, it's not just um, the totality of things. So we could say that, but even we could say rec- rec- this experience of the divine involve a recognition about about their relational, and they involve a recognition about the relationship of who I am. They're related to who I am in its relationship with um, whether one realizes it or not. Something much larger that contains, subsumes it, that the self is a part of or related to, or um, participates in, etc. And that, that something is not a rigidly bound, boundary entity, but rather something that, as I said, also subsumes, contains, includes, or is everything, and more than the totality of things. Could say that, but even that may be a little, a little too far a step. So if we just <clears throat> go back just a little bit and say, experiences of the divine, the diversity of experience of the divine, have some sense of being relational. They imply something. Uh, they are related to a sense of who I am most deeply. And and and, and recognize that, that that is the case anyway, whether I realize it or not. This what they say about who I am and what it is, what who I am is in relationship with, um, is the case whether I realize it or not. Is that that is an aspect of experience of the divine? But maybe it would be better to say that the nature of the experience of relationship <coughs> with with the divine in 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 the, those kind of experiences is something akin to echoes. Like echoes in a, in a canyon or, or or something, echoes of, uh, of of a voice in a canyon. We cannot find the end point. We cannot find the terminus, the termination, the limit of those echoes or of the sense of the divine. So there's a sense in this <coughs> relating that it somehow 
like an echo. It 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 echoes, and I can't find the end point. There is an echoing into the infinite beyond or the unknown. It's something I I know very palpably, and it's very uh, right here. And and yet there's also this dimensionality, this echoing, this echoing into the infinite beyond, the unknown, some kind of unfathomability and therefore some kind of mystery in some way or other. And again, there's a, there's a range, uh, there's a huge variety there. But the nature of the experience of relationship that's kind of intrinsic to an experience of divinity is something akin to to an echoing without an end point. Or something like infinite mirrors reflecting each other. There's the reflection of the reflection of the reflection of the reflection. It's hard to put this into into language. This is the best I can do right now. But um, again, I'm pointing to something that we can notice in our experiences when we feel a sense of divinity. It's very hard to articulate. <clears throat> but that sense of infinite echoing, infinite mirroring, uh, the endlessness of, of that, the sense of um, endless mirroring or echoing, and I don't necessarily mean it doesn't imply spatiality, right? that kind of endlessness. I mean, it might or it might not. It doesn't imply vastness in that sense necessarily. But that sense of endlessness and infinity is not... Um, intrinsic to the experience of the divine is that that sense of infinity and endlessness in the echoing and the mirroring and the the lack of an end point that's discernible is not nihilistic in its implications or its feeling. It's not doesn't give a sense of meaninglessness. Rather it gives a sense of beauty, a sense of belonging, of love, of place, of blessing. So all this I would kind of point out <coughs> is um are aspects of, if you like, of experiences of, of what we're calling the divine. As I said, there's a huge diversity and the uh, experiences of the divine evolve, or can evolve, as, as well as the concepts for different reasons. <clears throat> I would also say that um, there's a dimension of timelessness to the divine, to the Buddha nature. So, for me, it... it, it involves that. It might not be all that it is, or all the dimensions of the divine are timeless. But, um, we'll perhaps come back to that, but there is a dimension of timelessness to the divine, to the Buddha nature. So all of this, as we said, there there will be a dimension or dimensions of the Buddha nature that are beyond the full grasp of our understanding, of our conceptualization. But in all of this, there's a sense of rightness, if you like. There's something right about the experience. That there's implications, a sense of meaningfulness in implicit in the experience, involved, woven into the experience, implied by the experience, and beauty. In the divinity, there is beauty. And in our relationship, our sense of the relationship that's implicit in the experience of divinity, there's beauty in that as well. So all that I would just to, just to point out again what's not what's actually quite hard to articulate and what's not always obvious um, in these kinds of experiences. And again, I'm actually sure I'm leaving much not said. <clears throat> now. 
our experiences and our concepts of divinity, we could divide into two types, and I've touched on this before already. Um, we could divide them, our experiences and concepts, into the transcendent experiences and concepts, or and the what we're calling immanent. Now, these two words, transcendence and immanence, um, people use them in in different contexts and use them in very different ways. Um, what I mean by transcendent in this case is they transcend uh, the the divinity or the unfabricated transcends um, perception, uh, transcends space, time, a sense of self, of other, of any object whatsoever. Um, uh, it, it transcends uh, <clears throat> any kind of conventional um, constellation of subject, object, time, even if it's um, uh, a sense of oneness and a sense of present moment. Um, so I mean it in that sense, the unfabricated, the transcendent, unfabricated, transcendent, what transcendent to our usual perception is, is the main point. Um, and uh, as I said, we, we, we talked a lot about and written about the, the way that uh, in the Dharma meditation practice can be used, certain ways of looking to fabricate, to understand how to fabricate less and less perception and eventually open up to that, to that transcendent unfabricated. So there's the transcendent sense of divinity, uh, or kind of experience and concept of divinity, uh, and there's what we might call the imminent, again, used in different ways, etc. Um, but then I really mean this world of fabrication and a sense of that world itself being divine. So yes, these objects that I perceive, this self that is perceiving, the subject and object, um, <clears throat> the perceiving itself, the world... Um, all of that desire. There's a sense of um, an increasing fullness, if you like, of the perception of divinity in the realm of perception. And in all kinds of ways. So that, yes, it's fabricated. One acknowledges that. One has gone perhaps deep enough into the understanding of fabrication um, that divinity starts to reveal itself in different ways. And different possibilities for that perception uh, open up. <clears throat> but uh, we want, I would say, um, we want to open up these experiences of transcendent and imminent divinity um, from our practice or through our practice. In other words, from what we're calling our phenomenological approach. So this, for, for me, is uh, really important. From the very phenomenolo phenomenological approach that we talked about right at the beginning of the retreat, or very near the beginning, in other words, through practice, through using approaching practice with a certain uh, uh, very open, basic conceptual idea, um, and then through the exploration of ways of looking, etc., all this can open up. So often... Historically, in the West, it is assumed that anything that uh, kind of talks about or points to or upholds or uh, uh, something beyond the sort of flat one-dimensionality of um, materialist existence, um, any talk of divinity, etc., is <coughs> uh, metaphysics. 
metaphysics is, is often a very charged word and a very uh, derogatory word sometimes, and <clears throat> but it's used in very different ways, or rather it means quite a lot of different things, and different. it's used to mean different things by different people at different times. But one of the things it means is this <clears throat> um, talking about or referring to or pointing to or insisting on or drawing attention to um, anything that's beyond this sort of flat, um, one-dimensional view of reality, any talk of divinity, etc., anything, actually, that is um, more than what is obvious to the normal, untrained, modernist perception, unless it's approved scientifically by scientific authorities. Anything that is... Um, <clears throat> or scientific is the authority of scientific establishment. Anything that is what is uh, more anything that's more than what is obvious to the normal, typical, untrained uh, perception of uh, a, a, a Westerner today in our modernist culture <clears throat> is regarded as metaphysics, and it's often assumed that um, so any talk of divinity or something like an unfabricated or whatever is uh, metaphysics, and metaphysics is rooted in abstract thought, in belief, in speculation. So those words often go together, metaphysical speculation. Actually, the word speculation is from the word speculum in Latin, which means mirror. <clears throat> so it's kind of, it was supposed to mirror reality, if you like, but, or truth, but it's come to mean something quite different. Speculation is just like uh, uh, conjecture, or, you know, kind of groundless um, unreality. But there's often this assumption that all this talk about divinity, etc., is just metaphysics. It's just metaphysics, something beyond the obvious one-dimensional, therefore it's not real, etc. Seemingly obvious one-dimensional. So, for example, I have this book here um, <clears throat> by a guy called Moshe Barash, <clears throat> and it's a book called Icon. So it's studying the histories of, of the idea of, of the icon in, in um, well, Western, but also Middle Eastern thought. Um, and he uh, quotes a passage from our friend who I mentioned <coughs> early in the retreat, um, Pseudo Dionysus the Areopagite, if you remember him, um, who wrote uh, some works, and one of them is called Mystical Theology. And uh, Moshe Barash writes that he gives <coughs> a concise summary of um, apophatic negative theology. Um, uh, come back to what that means, in the shape of a compressed description of what happens when we are being uplifted. Let me read uh, the quote from Pseudo-Dionysus and then come back to what, what this means or how one might read it, <coughs> how pe different people read it. So Pseudo-Dionysus writes in his mystical theology, Again, as we climb higher, we say this, It is not soul or mind, nor does it possess imagination, conviction, speech, or understanding. It is not number or order, greatness or smallness, equality or inequality, similarity or dissimilarity. Darkness and light, error and truth, it is none of these. It is beyond assertion and denial. We make assertions and denials of what is next to it, but never of it, for it is both beyond every assertion being the perfect and unique cause of all things, 
and, by virtue of its preeminently simple and perfect nature, free of every limitation, beyond every limitation, it is also beyond every denial. So you will recognize, if not in all of that, in other words, in, apart from the thing about the cause, um, something very, very close and almost um, echoing the Buddha's words in some of those uh, quotes I think I shared earlier about when he, when he taught about the unfabricated and there are quotes in the uh, passages in the Pali Canon. Um, this neither long nor short, um, uh, beyond measure, uh, etc., etc., uh, there no no sun no moon shines there etc. Um, all of this word uh, where phenomena cease um, all ways of speaking cease etc. etc. Beyond mind all this is very characteristic of what uh, is called the apophatic movement the movement in in our language the movement towards um, the quietening of fabrication and eventually the, the cessation of the fabrication of perception. <clears throat> In um, uh, Christian terminology, that's called the apophatic way. The via negativa, the, the way of n- negation. And not this, not that, neti, neti. What we want is something uh, that is beyond all fabrication or perception, therefore, in the, in the usual sense. So, to me, that passage clearly reads as a description of the experience of the meditator or the, the, uh, the, um, the person in prayer as they uh, go through this process of letting go of fabrication, letting go in relation to what is fabricated, and therefore fabricating less. Remember, relating all this to clinging, letting go of clinging, the spectrum of what clinging is, and then the decrease in fabrication. And and going, if you like, in St. John's language, into the cloud of unknowing, into the darkness of God. Or in Meister Eckhart's language, beyond creatures, beyond what is created, what is fabricated. So to me, this passage of Pseudo-Dionysus is, is a clear... Um, description of, of a meditative uh, progression of experience. Um, uh, amazingly to me, or what strikes me, uh, uh, is um, what follows immediately uh, from, from Moshe Barish in this book, um, is he writes, <coughs> it is tempting to speculate what Dionysius could have had in mind when he tried to imagine, however vaguely, what the ascending soul might meet on its way upwards. In other words, he's reading this passage as just some kind of imagination and speculation on on Pseudo-Dionysius' part. It's just, in other words, this metaphysics, this abstraction of coming from thought that you then imagine what someone might experience. Um, And then... Barish continues, this is not the place to indulge in such speculation. Um, so often there's this assumption about uh, talk about other dimensions or divinity or something that sounds like what we just heard from Pseudo-Dionysus or the Unfabricated or whatever. And there's this insistence that it's just abstract thought. 
I don't know enough about the history, but sometimes I read things and it does seem that um, often people, some people start with some kind of ultimate metaphysical positing of, say, perfection. There is something or some entity or whatever that is perfect and then proceed logically from that to kind of um, deduce all kinds of things from that ultimate sort of speculation about something that's perfect, speculation in the, in the, the modern sense of the term. So, for example, in Plato you get something called the good, <coughs> and it's the kind of ultimate uh, reality, um, it, and it's assumed to be perfect. And then following in Neoplatonism and in Thomas Aquinas and m- many, many... Uh, teachers and writers in Western history. So there is the perfection of the good. And because the good is supposed to be perfect, therefore it follows X, and therefore it follows Y. So for example, out of this perfect one, because of its very perfection and absence of limitation, many are born. And there is the world of manifestation and plurality and diversity that comes out of it. And even out of this good, because of its perfection and superabundance and lack of limitation, even evil comes out of it. So there's a kind of logical movement from some, what seems like uh, a metaphysical um, postulation of something ultimate and perfect, um, and then a sort of logical deduction of the world and what we find in the world coming from that. And, uh, you know, this is... um, Kant, I, I, I think, is detectable, you know, not just in Western philosophy and from the Greek tradition, but it's also um, evident in Indian traditions, etc. Uh, in in Zogchen is actually called the Great Perfection. Um, so I don't know enough about the history of that, but certainly in <coughs> um, Indian Mahayana teaching, you can kind of see. I think, a a historical kind of movement, inclination, tendency to kind of um, posit kind of as as an axiomatic kind of fundamental truth the Buddha's perfection. So he he is the ultimate being and he is perfect in every way. And so what then follows that, he must have been like this, he must have had this kind of body and he must have had this and he must be able to do this and that. And there's this kind of expansion, if you like, of what a Buddha means historically just by virtue of positing his his ultimacy and perfection. Now that had, I think, all kinds of um, strange and unforeseen consequences, um, also very interesting consequences, and I think, I think actually fruitful ones, but uh, I know people would debate that. But So if a Buddha is, for example, ultimate in his compassion, um, he is the ultimately compassionate being, how do I square that with the fact that um, by virtue of his realization, his enlightenment, he's going to end rebirth and therefore not be available to help people who are suffering. He's supposed to be ultimately compassionate. So these two conflicting threads of the of the teaching and the supposition about ending rebirth and yet being ultimately compassionate, hundred you know, infinitely compassionate, um, they actually needed they came together because they're conflicting. They actually had to give rise to an, a kind of expansion of the logos of what Buddhahood was, the Buddhology, if you like. 
And included in that, and this I've touched on before, was the whole um, a whole explanation and uh, ramifications that came out of it of how then the the Buddha um, is the only being a, a Buddha is the only kind of being that can fully and deeply see the emptiness of things at the same time as actually perceiving those things, because for everyone else, as as a, pretty sure I've explained, as you contemplate the emptiness while you're looking at something, that thing will fade. Why? Because the avijja is getting less and the avijja um, fuels, stimulates the uh, fabrication in the wheel of dependent origination of nama rupa of which perception is a part. More avijja, more perception, more solidity, etc. of perception, more forms, more delineation. Less avijja, it quietens down. No avijja, no perception. The Buddha is the only person, this was all uh, very, I, I think, beautifully and cunning, but slightly bizarrely had to be drawn in to answer this question of, um, uh, well, if he ends rebirth um, uh, and, and he's ultimately compassionate, how does that fit together? Because if he's compassionate, he needs to see experiences. But yet, he, he must see emptiness fully as well. There must be no avijja there. Anyway, um, metaphysics, the main point is that um, it's often assumed that metaphysics is, is rooted as just a movement of abstract thought, abstract belief, abstract speculation. So there's a... Um, or a slur, an insult that, uh, I don't know who, who uh, came up with it, but um, it's sort of <coughs> around, that um, metaphysics, in, in other words, the, the um, pursuit of divinity and of the unfabricated or whatever, all that, is like, let me get this right, metaphysics is like a person walking into a dark cellar at midnight with no light and looking for a black cat that is not there. So it's, it's kind of funny, but it's uh, it's obviously, uh, in other words, metaphysics is just something ridiculous. It's a f- futile endeavor, etc. Looking for divinity or the unfabricated, etc. Some kind of beyond. Just, just silly pointless, futile. What, though, if we start with phenomena instead? Which I'm almost certain that you know, uh, many of these teachers in the past, and possibly even Plato, certainly Plotinus, etc., they um, had experience of this unfabricated this beyond, this good, this whatever they called it. Um, it certainly is not the case that everyone uh, is starting with this abstract thought, etc. What if we start with phenomena, in other words, appearances, that's what that word means, appearances. What appears to us? What, what do we uh, experience? What if we start with phenomena instead, instead it, rather than starting with some kind of ultimate postulate of what God is or, or whatever? 
then we might say that um, metaphysics taken the other way round, starting with some kind of postulate of what God is or how God must be or what divine is or what Buddha nature must be or what a Buddha must be, be, be like, then a better metaphor for metaphysics, rather than this looking for the black cat in the dark that isn't there, a better metaphor for m- metaphysics in that kind of uh, top-down approach would be uh, something like it's putting the cart before the horse. It's putting the cart before... In other words, it's putting what we... Um, don't even know if that's the best metaphor, but um, in other words, getting things in the wrong order. What if we start with what we observe, what we um, actually experience, and investigate that experience and the range of it and how it um, <coughs> is affected in different ways, by ways of looking, etc., then that, that what we're calling the phenomenological approach, that what we're calling the phenomenological approach, that can actually open up the discoveries of metaphysics in the sense of other dimensionalities, the divine, the experience of the divine, the unfabricated, etc. We start from uh, phenomena, from appearance, from experience, and our play with that, our investigation of ways of looking at that. Now that implies um, that experience is somehow being used as a basis for our epistemology, for our claims of knowing something. Experience is somehow a basis for epistemology. But what I would like to say is we must include a range of experience there must include the experience of lessening fabrication, the observation of how um, appearances fade to different degrees depending on the degree of clinging. We must include the experience, if we can call it that, of that, if we can call it that, of the unfabricated. We must include this, um, this uh, growing understanding of dependent origination and of how ways of looking uh, condition fabricate the experience. So experience somehow is a basis for epistemology, um, but how and to what extent? And there is always an epistemology. There is always um, an epistemology that we are, uh, if you like, engaging in living and in practicing. And epistemologies always involve some assumptions, always rest on some assumptions, and some assumptions that actually are ultimately not provable. So that goes for what I'm presenting as the phenomenological approach. It's not outside. It doesn't exist without certain assumptions. It certainly involves an epistemology, what I'm calling a phenomenological approach, and, and, and that epistemology. Epistemology rests on some assumptions, and some of those assumptions are unprovable. And that is an inescapable fact of our existence. <clears throat> so, the, one of the questions here is, can we recognize this, that there is always an epistemology, that, that epistemology, whatever we use for our epistemology, always involves some assumptions? And actually expose that, become recognize it, become aware of it, and expose it. Be honest about it. <clears throat> so not doing that leads to all kinds of um, kind of pitfalls and contradictions and limitations and, and 
you can imagine a kind of um, conversation. For instance, if I said to someone of a certain <coughs> dogmatic persuasion, uh, space and time are not fundamental, they are emergent. And they might reply, this person perhaps they're from a sort of devout, secularist, dog- dogmatic point of view, so oh, that's metaphysics. If I say space and time are not fundamental, they are emergent. So, oh, that's that's metaphysics, because that's uh, saying something about uh, some kind of transcendent beyond. And I might say, or a person, <coughs> another person might say, oh, but actually it's science. Um, and that the word science has a certain clout in our culture. So it is, it's a science, and then we refer to theories of both special and general relativity, and how time and space are shaped, if you like. Um, and relative to the observer and all kinds of things. and But even beyond that, in the more contemporary theories that haven't been proved yet, but are certainly strong, strong contenders and, and themselves emerging into the forefront of modern physics research, is actually not just that space and time are shaped, but that they actually emerge from something, if you like, more fundamental, <coughs> that is beyond space and beyond time. Even the present moment, uh, all of it. Not just shape, but actually emerge. So I could say, uh, whoever is in dialogue with this person, and say, oh, but that's science, and explain that a little bit to them. And they might say, well, that's all very good and well, but it's better for practitioners to go back to um, their experience, or we are basing our teaching on experience, to which a person might respond. Um, but what if a transcendence of space and of time are sometimes a person's experience. Certainly something that we cultivated in meditation, that the access access to that kind of experience. So you're saying, oh, forget about all that science stuff, which which can sound kind of mystical. Um, let's go back to experience. But what if a person's experience does include that? Sometimes going in and out of a transcendence of space and time. And things. If uh, you're basing your epistemology and teaching on experience, then why not include these experiences? Especially as they're repeatable, one can actually learn how to move in and out of such experiences, dependent on certain laws, etc., if you like, laws of fabrication and dependent origination. Why do you say uh, you include those experiences but not these experiences? We have the authority of science, but science involves training. Not everyone can be a theoretical physicist who understands um, <coughs> relativity or quantum mechanical reality, etc. It involves training. It's not easy. Practice is the same. It involves training. Maybe not for everyone. Not everyone wants to. And, and some of it's not easy. Um, but there's something, a question here, why um, if you're basing it on experience, which you clearly are, or a person says, we base our dharma on experience, but then you're excluding certain meditative experiences just because what? Because you haven't had them? Why should the authority of what counts as true or untrue or dharma or not dharma or epistemologically valid (coughs) or not, why should the authority rest with those uh, with less skill and less range in their experience, meditation. And some people get nervous. They say, "Well, we can't um, have 
elites claiming a certain esoteric knowledge and then and then having all the power. But to swing the other way, I mean, certainly there's a danger of that. You know, priests and abuse and all, all that kind of stuff. Because we know we have the power, we have the mystical insight that you don't have. There's a danger there, of course there is, and people have pointed to this in history, in all kinds of ways, religious and secular as well, in fact. Nowadays, some some journalists are pointing to swing the other way. There's a kind of um, dismissal and ignoring, ignoring and denigration of any kind of expertise. So any, it's like, uh, or, uh, you know, ignorance is uh, is to be kind of somehow celebrated. But there's a question here about authority, about epistemology about consciousness and honesty about epistemology and authority, exploration of these things. And what is the place of experience and what range of experience in the epistemology, in the revelation and discovery of, let's say, reality, truth, dimensionality, divinity, whatever words you might want to pick there. So going from what we're calling a phenomenological approach, and just to point out, our phenomenological approach, um, or the way we're using that word, phenomenological approach, that phrase, is not just the same as just observing. Um, We're we're including more than that in our phenomenological approach. Um, I would say just observing is a bit of a misnomer and based on a misunderstanding, but it's a it's one of the ways that um, uh, the term phenomenology gets gets used or or practice gets thought about as well. Why is it different and why is it more than that for us? Because we realize and we acknowledge and we see that the ways of looking um, fabricate the experience. That so the experiences that we <coughs> encounter, undergo, that we that open to us, that we um, live, if you like, are dependent on the ways of looking that we are employing, that are in place at any time. And we recognize, we realize, we acknowledge, we see also <coughs> the necessity and the inevitability of making certain delineations um, in our conceptuality, conscious or unconscious, subtle or gross, and how that also gives rise to, fabricates the experience. And the exploration of all that contingency, dependency on ways of looking and and conceiving, how all that gives rise to experience and the range of experience dependent on that, that's what we're calling our phenomenological approach. So sometimes sometimes, um, (coughs) some phenomenological philosophers want to talk about (coughs) the experience of self phenomenologically, but there is no one phenomenological experience of self. A, it's culturally conditioned hugely, um, and and B, as we just said, it's it's um, dependent on the way of looking and the delineations existing at any time. Uh, so we can talk about we can talk about experiences of something that we might call self, but it is plural. There isn't. If we just observe this, the self is what we realize is that the self is like this. More than that, we, as I've said many times before, we actually see that um, without 
distinctions and delineations and ways of looking, no perception is possible. There isn't any perception without some conception which involves distinction and delineation, even the bare subject-object or present uh, moment delineation, distinction, discrimination. <coughs> conception is involved in perception. Perception implies ways of looking. There is no, nothing arises, is fabricated without distinction, delineation, ways of looking. And there is no <coughs> reality, if you like. There's no perception independent of these. There's no experience independent of ways of looking, distinction, delineations. Nothing um, is given to us by something independent of ways of looking. The myth of the given, I think, is a phrase in <coughs> contemporary philosophy. So with our phenomenological, phenomenologi- what we're calling our phenomenological approach, um, we, we can open to the unfabricated uh, and the understanding of the dependent original, the emptiness of all things. So that is one type of... Uh, one face, if you like, one aspect or dimension of divinity that can open through the phenomenological approach. If <coughs> I view practice, Dharma practice, as just being mindful, in the sense of just being present and learning to uh, concentrate or focus my mind and developing metta, developing kindness being kind. If that's what my practice involves, just that, mindfulness, being with what is, being, <coughs> uh, concentrating my mind, focusing my mind on my breath or at times to calm down, etc., and, uh, and, and being kind. That's not the phenomenological approach that we're talking about. That involves this exploration, conscious exploration of the range of ways, of, of ranges of ways of looking. That kind of um, view or, or conceptual understanding of what the Dharma is and what practice involves and what meditation is, mindfulness, concentration, and, and, and metta, <coughs> almost it's very unlikely to lead to an understanding, a deep understanding of the radical emptiness of all things. And it's highly unlikely that it will... Um, open up all the possibilities that come both out of seeing emptiness and out of the recognition of of um, soul-making, etc., and eros, and the allowing of that. So what we have again is um, a, a broader mindfulness, a certain way of thinking about what mindfulness is, um, that we're calling our phenomenological approach, and that can open us to, in time, uh, the sense of a, a transcendent divinity. We might call the unfabricated or whatever word we use to it. And, within our broader phenomenological approach, within a sort of, as I said right at the beginning of this talk, a less, a less tightly constrained or conceived of mindfulness, um, we will also will also lead to an exploration of eros and soul making. And that will bring um, more of this uh, uh, more experiences and concepts of, of 
than the immanent divine. I mean, the uh, the way via reduction of clinging and going right through the unfabricated and then the emptiness and the unfabricated also brings a certain kind of um, experience of the imminent divine, absolutely. But the range is greatly opened up once we include an awareness of <coughs> eros and soul-making and allow that and begin to explore that. And let's go into that a little bit more in the next talk.